I will never forget arriving at Leicester Square Station. Beautiful evening, blue sky, and just people everywhere. Oh my goodness me, I was buzzing! This is London, people, London! Welcome to I Am an Immigrant, the podcast about people who have come to the UK from somewhere else. I'm your host, Christine Bacon, and yes, dear listener, I am an immigrant. This week's guest is Lucien Msamati. Lucien is primarily known for his work as an actor on stage and screen. In recent times, he's starred in TV shows such as Gangs of London, Game of Thrones, and his Dark Materials. Theatre fans will know him well for his work in countless productions over the years. I saw him most recently in an unforgettable portrayal of Salieri in Peter Schaffer's Amadeus at the National Theatre, which you can watch via NT at home. We chatted via Zoom during the lockdown, so apologies for the variable sound quality. Lucien is one of those all-round great people, generous with his laughter and is, as you might expect, a true raconteur. I hope you enjoy this episode. My name is Lucien Namsamati and I am an immigrant. Thank you for coming on the show, Lucien. It's lovely uh, to have my you. Pleasure. It's a great name, Lucien. I love it. Why, thank you. I am one of only two of my uh, late grandfather's 40-plus grandchildren who has his first name. So I wear it with pride. Oh, right. You're the privileged one. I am indeed. Yes. And it, me- it means light, doesn't it? It does indeed. It is also a derivative of Lucifer. So I'm not sure that that's... Uh... <laughs> you, you got the two in you. Yeah. The light and the shade. <laughs> Good for an actor. Good for an actor to have that. So do you feel like an immigrant? That's a very interesting question. Weirdly, full disclosure, when my parents were were studying in the UK, it was the end of their time here. Myself and my late brother were born. At the time, this was before 1983, children who were born to citizens of the Commonwealth had the right to take British citizenship if they wanted it. Legend has it, and confirmed by my, my mother, her and my late father had quite a big argument over whether then the two of us should have British citizenship. She was adamant that if we got it, we would forget who we were, we would forget where we'd come from. And it was my father who said, listen, they won't forget who they are, but having this passport is going to make things easier. Whether it's easier or not, I don't know. I remember at one point saying to friends in our travels around the world that actually it just gets you through borders. That's what it does which for some I know is an ordeal, but really the easy part is going, yes, go through. That bit there uh, does not mitigate for all the other shit. (laughs) Um, So having spent the first two, three, maybe four years of my formative life here, we returned to the continent of Africa, to Malawi, to Tanzania, to Zimbabwe. So it's, yes, I I do really feel like an immigrant. Can I just ask you, when you most feel like an immigrant? Oh, that's an interesting one. When do I most feel like an immigrant? I have to say, it is in certain social circles. I'm, I'm not a wallflower by any stretch of the imagination. I'm not a shrinking violet. But yes, there's always a, a line of questioning, shall we say, that makes you very aware of who you are. Makes you very aware that, quote unquote, you are not from here, are you? Because I, I didn't grow up or have the, the bulk of my primary, secondary, tertiary education in this country, 
there are lots of references that I don't get. And, I, and you know, that, that's over time you learn, you know, because we're not idiots. We're, you know, we're sponges. You look, you listen, you learn. So I'm not going to do any sort of deep dive into like this film or that play or this TV show that you've been in because other podcasts are available <laughs> for, that, for that purpose. Very true. Um, so Wikipedia tells me uh-huh. <laughs> you were born in 1976 here. And as you've said, that allowed you to get your hands on a, on a British passport. Yeah. Um, I, I'm interested in this argument your parents had. That's quite unusual, actually. I would have thought, why not? You know, why not? get a British passport, but... It's, I actually think that it is a lot more more common in certain households than in others. I have family members who don't live in this country, who I might as well be living in, in Wonderland, some amazing techno uh, Hollywood Disney superland. For somebody who has not had that, for somebody who, for whom these things are images on, on televisions or in magazines or online, on social media, it's a ticket into a whole new world. The ticket into a, into a, simply a better life. So you were born yes. here, um, and your parents were immigrants to this country for a while. Is that yes. right? Yes. Um, my late father, if memory serves me correctly, came on a, a scholarship to do his PhD. He's a medical doctor by profession, an anatomist and, and histologist. Well, I believe it was a WHO scholarship from the University of Dar es Salaam to train here in the United Kingdom for I think five years or something. Something like that. It was not long after he and my mother got married. So I think she joined him maybe a year or two later. But then myself and my late brother were born. And then we left and we went to the Middle East and then back to Tanzania and then to Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe feels much more like home because that is literally where I grew up. (laughs) Everything about me as a man, as an intellectual, as an artist, the bulk of it is shaped by Zimbabwe. You mentioned your late brother. I mean, do you mind talking about him? or No, not at all. He was a Cyril Upile Luombo None Msamati. To give him his full honorific, he was three years younger than I was. And then there's a 10-year gap. And then my two other siblings, my parents had two sets of two. But yeah, he um, passed away, I think it would probably be 10 years next year. It's very young. Yes, he was very young. He was a care worker, a very, very good heart. But he didn't have health issues. He struggled with his diabetes. It was a real a real struggle for him and he and he had bouts of being able to handle it and bouts of not being able to handle it. His funeral here in London, his funeral was like a rock star's funeral. I mean there were so many people. So many. He was an incredibly sociable man who had he had legions of friends, legions of people with a very good heart. A very, very good heart. We kept a lot of the letters that some of the, the family members of uh, former patients that he had cared for, and they said how he was such a loving, wonderful carer for their their relatives, how, you know, he really, he got them. But in some ways, the care that he perhaps did not give to himself, he gave to others. There's a parallel here with those who are working, in, who are care workers now in this particular pandemic. I think we don't appreciate the toll it can take on the mental and physical, spiritual health of those who are working day in, day out, hour after hour in the care and service of others. Yeah. A lot of whom are of immigrant stock. When you moved to Zimbabwe, how old were you, about 10? I was seven, seven or eight. And it was newly independent then? Pretty you? much, pretty much. It was three, four years into independence. I mean, Zimbabwe then was the boom town of Africa. And there was a very big push to get black African expatriates in to build this new independent, forward-thinking black African nation. 
But there is also, it's very interesting, an interesting flip on the, the history of immigration is that as the political and social situation in Zimbabwe deteriorated, who did the canons turn on? The foreigners. This is a bit of a big bomb to drop, but I think it's an important issue of discussion. Sometimes the worst thing to be, particularly in a, in a black African country, is a black foreigner. And we, we, we don't often talk about this. There is a through line when you look at the waves of xenophobic attacks in South Africa as things begin to come apart socially, economically. Who is the first target? The foreigners. It was subtle. Things like, hmm, ah, the foreigners are getting paid more money. Do you think that's fair? That kind of thing. And people like my father would turn around and say, well, you know, I do come highly qualified and you wanted me. <laughs> Sounds familiar, doesn't it? In my experience, the bulk of the African middle class, certainly in the first generation that I know, literally are the bootstraps generation. <laughs> so, yes, our life was much more comfortable than many others, but we didn't live a freely life. We know how to survive. Particularly with, with African households, you open the fridge and you see all these bottles of Smirnoff vodka, Lenfidic. And you're like, wow, these people are drinkers. And you look closely, it's like, oh, no, no, they're water bottles. You're having a meal and, and you're like, wow, we're going to get hammered tonight. Oh, no, no, no. Oh, no, no, no. That bottle of Cardu is about 15 years old. It's for water now. Nothing gets wasted. Nothing gets thrown away. You don't do the water thing, obviously. Well, I, I have my moments. I do, I do have my moments. So I'm interested, is this true that you studied French and Portuguese? That is correct. At the end of high school, I wanted to go to drama school. That was my dream and my desire. There was no way that was going to happen. I was strongly dissuaded from that by parents, by, by school, even though, to be fair, to be fair, I think a lot of teachers around that time said to me, you do have a talent. If you take it seriously, you could go far. But at home... And again, this is the story of many. What constitutes a real job? A real job is you're a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, an engineer. I remember my father sitting me down saying, so tell me, what do you want to do with your life? And me saying, you know what? I want to be an actor. And he said, ah, very good. Acting is a hobby. What do you want to do with your life? You know, you come from a long line of teachers. And I felt the weight of family history and expectation boom, on my shoulders. And um, your grandfather's name, was he a teacher? Yes, he was. And, and my father was a very respected and well-loved teacher of doctors later on. So many of people who go, are you Professor Msamati's son? Oh, my God, he was my teacher. He was awesome. He was blah, 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 you know. To my late father's credit, many years later, he, I remember him saying to me, the thing is, we were ignorant of this world. We didn't know anything about it. You know, what's that? It's on TV. It's in magazines. It's not real. And I completely understand. Now I understand. At the core of it all, with any decent parent, their true desire is for you to be happy and independent. You know, my parents always said to us, you are not our pension plan. The fact that you've got an education and that you've had all these opportunities and you're independent isn't about me. You're not an investment. You're a, a blessing. So you came to the UK one day. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> with your company, yes. you Right, yes. And I remember you reading an, an article, an interview with you, where you talked about when you arrived in London and just being like, yeah, London, baby. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> I, I was the same. You know, you see the, the London images, you have some of the phone booths and the, and when you're actually in among it, it's, it's, it's quite an amazing feeling, isn't it? Yes, yes. 
I will never forget this, that summer. It would have been the summer of, the summer of 1997, arriving at Leicester Square, Leicester Square Station, in the in beautiful evening blue sky and just people everywhere. Oh my goodness me, I was buzzing. We were absolutely buzzing, going, wow, we are, this is London, people, London. That real sense, there's something amazing happening around the corner, got to catch it. There was just this big, beautiful, amazing place with all these pubs, clubs, theatres, people from all over. It was just a certain type of beautiful, anonymous freedom that, uh, that in, the, in that first flush is wonderful. But <laughs> as we well know, there's the come down. <laughs> and the come down is when the growth starts. It's when you start to, to build yourself back up. It's when you start to look around and go, wow, okay. Yes, there are lots of people and there is a sense of something happening amazing around the corner, but that's because everybody's chasing it. Can you talk about that that time doing doing the international rounds and oh, wow. I think you've described it as being broken drunk on many continents. Yes. <laughs> Broke and drunk and doing great art and meeting great people, learning and learning and growing. Yes, of course, there's the the thrill and the excitement I think of being on the road is that the show is the thing, and it's always a new town, it's always a new audience. Your creativity is under scrutiny in a different kind of way, in the best possible way. I remember sitting with contemporaries from different parts of the world and having these wonderful discussions about, so how do you do this, how do you do that, about, about, about practice. And it wasn't that we didn't have a practice. It wasn't that we were indisciplined, but it was that growing up in a part of the world where Art and creativity were not seen as a profession, even though we had, in my view, world-class practitioners <laughs> in all disciplines, but who simply all had other jobs because it didn't pay or didn't pay enough. Seeing that leap, the difference between amateur and professional, I don't believe is, is financial. I don't think it's about ability. I think it is about attitude. To be amongst contemporaries who were living, breathing, working artists who had families, who had homes, who had paid the bills, but art was their work. Now, this is what I do. I get up and I go to work at the theater. I get up and I go to work at the studio. I go to, and I'm making art all day long, all night long. And I come home and I do the homework and I pay the bills and I go to the supermarket and it's as mundane, quote unquote, a profession as any other. And so seeing that living and breathing was a wonderful teacher. It is also interesting in that people's view of Africa and Africans was very, very warped. I remember in America, this very well-dressed older gentleman coming up to us after we had done our version of Twelfth Night. And he said, um, wow, that was amazing. You guys speak English there? And a part of you is slack-jawed. And then there's another part of you going, wow, they really have no idea. Our world, they really literally don't know. The bulk of people were respectful, were human beings. And of course, we made friends. We made friends and we, you know, we had repeat visits to places in Germany where, you know, because you have now established relationships with people, they would, who would sit with you as fellow professionals and go, you know, the show you brought last year was world class. The show you brought this year, mm, not so good. And here's why. Da, 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 da. I mean, that show was better executed than this one. Without uh, being patronized without being made to feel or look or sound less, you were simply with fellow artists going, well, this is the gig, son. I think also what we found was a level of 
a certain degree of insularity within Britain to negotiate for no other reason but that I think when you are considered to be the top, when all roads lead to your door, it's not, it's not a recipe for introspection, for constructive, critical, constructive introspection. <laughs> In many ways, one could argue that same strand of thought has been played out politically. Hi, just popping in here to ask if you could help an immigrant out. If you're enjoying this podcast, please subscribe and recommend it to friends. A five-star rating and review on iTunes also goes a long way towards getting the word out. And we're really keen that the podcast is as interactive as possible. So follow us on the socials, all the details are in the show notes, and get in touch with your suggestions of interesting immigrants to feature on the show. We'd really love to hear from you. Thanks, guys. Now, back to the conversation. So you, you had this period of working with your theatre company, and then was it Maggie Maggie Lunn that saw you, saw you in, a, in something? And yeah. uh, I'd like to introduce you to someone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then you started working as an actor in the UK. Yeah. And since that point, it's just been glamour and glitter and red carpets <laughs> and champagne. Is that, is that right, Lucian? Apparently so. <laughs> I think you said that sometimes you have to play the third spear carrier on the left. Fair <laughs> <laughs> share of spear carrying, is that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, the thing is, you know, here we are in the middle of uh, our life's journey. And I suppose in this time of pause, one of the benefits is I've been able to properly sit back and look back and go, wow, okay, wow, yeah, wow. I never thought of it that way. I don't think anybody thinks that their life is particularly spectacular or blessed because they're living it. It's highs, it's lows, it's, it's in-betweens. But yes, I, I certainly feel older and wiser <laughs> in the best possible way. Certain insecurities of youth and of climbing this professional ladder have gone, long since gone, because I see them for the, for the empty pieces of fake crap that they actually are and that I didn't need to have that in my head to begin with, but only time teaches you that. It has been glittery and glamorous, but I would say <laughs> that only 2% of it is glittery and glamorous. In reality, the rest of it has been <laughs> up, down, all around, doing these sensational things, but nobody knows that, you know, you've got those letters that come through the post with a final warning. Nobody knows that part. And I remember someone saying to me, um, <laughs> I, I was out on a date and uh, this very lovely young lady, really lovely, talking, it's all going very nicely, exchanging you know, life stories. And she said, oh, yeah, I mean, you've done fantastically professionally, but you, I guess you've been lucky, haven't you? And something inside of me flipped. And I thought, wow, okay, so which bit exactly is the lucky bit? When I was locked out of a house because the people I was staying with believed I was out consorting with prostitutes and drinking until all hours of the night, when in actual fact I was in a theatre painting a set because we had to paint the set ourselves, but consistently coming home at night was clearly about his consorting with prostitutes and, and all the rest of it, who then wrote to my parents to say that they were con I was consorting with prostitutes and drinking and I had gone down a dark path. When those envelopes come through the post, and you're looking at your bank account and you're looking at the bucket of sweat and blood and tears <laughs> and you're going, but how? I don't understand. I don't have a yacht outside. 
I don't go on fancy holidays. My my trainers have got shoes in them, not shoes, holes. <laughs> I've not bought a new pair of trousers for the past three. You know, it's like I don't understand. Did I feel lucky then? Did I feel lucky when a big new spanking show is coming to town and there's all this fanfare and buzz around it, and you you meet with high flying, amazing directors who say to you, "Oh no, no, it's going to happen. It's going to be you." And we're starting rehearsals next week. And you you look at your your contract with your agent, and you're like, "Oh, thank the good Lord, yes, phew, can sort out that bill, that bill done, awesome, great." Only to be told it's not happening. Now here's the thing: how many stories like that happen every day, all the time? I could list zillions of them. Did I feel lucky then? Did I feel lucky when my brother was found dead in his apartment? Did I feel lucky when you know you're rehearsing this massive show? And you get a phone call, your mother crying in tears, telling you your father is dead. You know, did I feel lucky then? Life is life. <laughs> Lucy, I'm guessing there wasn't another date after that. <laughs> well, let's just say that uh, that my uh, my diplomacy skills ensured that the night ended very, very well. Yes, but there wasn't another date after that. No. No. <laughs> you didn't flip. You didn't flip too much. <laughs> um, you've talked about going to auditions and the play clearly being set in a specific African country and then the, the casting director saying, oh, just do a general African thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think a lot of directors are guilty of this, but can you describe as, as an African what the hell that, that does to you? I say this never to attack or insult my fellow players and artists because I know how hard it is, but there's always a little bit of my heart that sinks when you watch something <laughs> and what comes out is either a very Nigerian or a very bad Nigerian uh, accent. And I am no expert, but I do know that is not what Uganda sounds like. That's not what Kenya sounds like. It's not what Zimbabwe sounds like, you know. But it is um, sometimes we have reduced something that is an exact science to just uh, tick that box. I remember doing a radio play. And the character I played, who was a Zimbabwean, and he was a musician, and reading the script, and I suddenly see, oh, hang on, huh? The Mbira and the Kora? I'm sorry, what? So I asked him, I asked the writer, very nice man, I said, I'm sorry, but the, the Kora is not a Southern African instrument at all. Where did you get that? And he said, oh, and I just looked it up on Google. Now, here's the, here's the thing. Had it not been me, someone else would have let that happen. Someone else would have gone, oh, okay, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. To his credit, he was like, yeah, no, I'll defer to you because you know and I don't. And in those instances, I'm like, great, thank you. The other interesting thing <laughs> is uh, issues of pronunciation. I don't mind saying this now because it is done and dusted and all the people that are involved, I, I hold in high esteem and respect. I did a series called Black Earth Rising around the Rwanda genocide. And one of the characters, played by the awesome Danny Safani, is called Simon Nyamoya. Now, what's interesting is that to an English tongue, when they see the letters N-Y-A, the natural inclination, totally understandably, is to go Naya. So the day I arrived on set and, you know, we're going through and I said Nyamoya, I was called aside and, and uh, said, I think the pronunciation we've been going with as it's... <laughs> And I flipped in a positive way. I was like, listen, cannot tell someone who speaks a Bantu language, who has a pretty good knowledge of Bantu languages, who has 
used this syllable on several occasions that it is Naya. There's no way. It just doesn't exist. You don't say Kenaya, do you? No. Hello and welcome to Kenaya. You don't say that. You say Kenya. It's the same syllable. N-Y-A. Nyamoya. Nyasa. Suffice to say that from that point on, the pronunciation was changed to the correct pronunciation. So, listen, you've been here 20 odd years now, is that right? Yeah, something yeah. like that, yeah. And you've, you've had a couple of kids in that time? You have indeed. A fully fledged adult. <laughs> and you've settled yourself in lovely South London. How do you think Zimbabwe has shaped you as a person? Whew, wow. How hasn't it shaped me as a person? It's shaped my worldview. It's shaped the value and esteem that I hold knowledge and education in. I grew up in a time and in a space where intellectual rigor was praised and celebrated. We, I suppose we were taught by generations of, of teachers who were the first to have that full access. And because you know, getting an education in the best possible way was a key to a better life. I remember friends of mine who had traveled to <laughs> come on holiday. And the kids, looking at other school kids, running, 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 running. And one of the kids asked, why are those kids running? And their dad said, well, they're running to get to school on time. And these guys were laughing their heads off, like, who wants to get to school on time? Ah! But it's a completely different thing. Of course, I want to get to school on time because I want to learn. I want to get good, good results, good grades, so I can get myself a good job and move on up. Now, that makes it sound incredibly beautiful and altruistic. There are all sorts of twists and turns within that, but the celebration of, of knowledge, I think, the, the value of knowledge, a certain delight in learning came from that period of time. My, my politics have been shaped <laughs> by growing up in a dictatorship. I mean, how, he must have loomed large over your life. Oh, oh forever and ever, forever and ever. The shape, the, the shape of a leader still looks like him somewhere within our psyche. Only those, I think, who have grown up properly in that kind of totalitarian existence understand what it, what it, what it is like to have a personality that is as big as the sky, an influence that is as big as the sky. And when you then look at subsequent leaders, not only in Zimbabwe, but of a certain generation, to this day even, they still, some of them, in very piss poor ways in some very subtle ways model themselves on him you can see it you can see it you can see the way the people carry themselves it's like a, a you know a poor impersonation <laughs> the way some people talk you're like oh god oh dear lord do you remember where, where you were when he was ousted or when he died yeah i was i was here in london town and it was oh gosh we were in a daze we were in a daze and, and I didn't realize or appreciate just how much of a figure he was in the world because that daze and haze was everywhere, absolutely everywhere. Like, wow, Bob is dead. Wow. And before that, it was, it was he's, he's out. Hang on, really? They got rid of him. Huh? It really was, it was Armageddon. That one secret, dark, deep wish that you had has come true. And for a brief spell, the relief, the celebration, the catharsis, even though, to be fair, if we're honest with ourselves, there was a little bit of us that went, mm, well, what is coming after? 
Where did it land? Dare I hope. And we did for a while, you know, just because that, that space was no longer there. My understanding and my disdain of a certain type of authority has come from growing up in Zimbabwe. So do you remember a moment of feeling like, this is my home now here in the UK, or was it a slow thing? Ooh, wow. I think it's been a, it's a gradual. I suppose it is opening the door when your children come home from school. Nothing quite beats that. And I don't say that with, with flowers and unicorns and rainbows, but you kind of open and you're like, wow, okay. This, for, this is their beginning. This is their home. Their start in life is this. Okay. Well, I guess this means I'm, I am home. Because I remember having moved around a, a bit myself in my, in my earlier life. For the longest time, whenever people asked me, where is home? I would say this country or that country, I would say Zimbabwe, I would say Tanzania, I would say, but the, the older I got, I realized actually, no, home is my, is my parents. Wherever my parents are, that's home. They are the foundation for me. And so whichever house it was, whichever country it was, you know you're going to see that Air Tanzania poster from 1982 that's long since faded, but it's still up. You know you're going to see that clock. You're going to see those plates, those slippers. Those things of home that are, that are your your identifiers. Strangely enough, part of losing uh, losing my brother, I was doing Twelfth Night at the time, and there was a line that every single night I, I would really have to choke back the the tears because Antiphonus says to Dromio, "My brother is the almanac of my true date." And there are so many memories, so many stories. There's a whole chapter of my life now that no one else knows about except him. Yeah, roots are strange things. There is no place in the world for me that has any special pull on my heart. And it is because as much as Zimbabwe, Tanzania, Malawi, England have shaped me and hold a place in my, in, in my life, the country I've always pursued, the magic land I've always pursued is my heart. I've been asked, will you ever move back to Zimbabwe or Tanzania? And at this stage, not because I don't like the places or whatever, but my answer will be no, because I'm pursuing my art. I'm following my art. Where my art goes, that's where I will go. That's the place that I wish to be. And who knows, maybe I will move from here. Because one of my very dear friends once said to me, and it is true to this day, places have no memory. Zimbabwe has no memory of me. The people that I grew up with, the people hold great respect, love, affection. Tanzania, you know, I've got my extended family. Of course, it is a part of me. But a place has no memory. We are the ones who have memories of it. And the more I go on, <laughs> you know, whether my brother had died in England or in Tanzania, he is my root, not the earth. And that part of me is now no more. My father passing on, those are the connections that I hold on to that define uh, who I am. And so... The artificiality of land borders, and we know the zillions of stories about them, why the earth is as it is, we absolutely know. But there are much stronger and much truer and much deeper bonds that can never be broken by those borders, and that must be celebrated. I've got to let you go soon, but can you tell me one thing? What is a good night out for you, Lucian? A good night out is good food, good friends, good art, good chat, laughter, and stumbling home safely as the sun comes up. Huge, huge.
huge thanks to Lucian. I loved that conversation and I hope you did too. As I mentioned before, you don't have to look far to find him doing what he does best on a screen or a stage near you. Fingers crossed stages will be operational sometime very soon. You've been listening to I Am An Immigrant, produced by me, Christine Bacon, and edited by Helen Clapp. Support for this podcast comes from the Paul Hamlin Foundation, and it is an Ice and Fire Theatre production. We'll be in your feed every week with a new conversation. Thank you so much for listening. Do get in touch with your suggestions for interesting guests, and catch you later. Mm-hmm.